Bibles, open them up to Matthew 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible in front of you uh, will be on page 868 this morning. So this is pretty exciting. Um, we are finishing Matthew 13 this morning. That means we are halfway through the book, and it's only taken 47 weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, there's a lot of stuff in here. <laughs> so my, uh, my kids homeschool, uh, and uh, my wife is a fantastic teacher, and that's kind of one of the things that she spends most of her time doing, is uh, leading my children in their education. And, uh, but I often get the opportunity to uh, step into that and play a little bit of a role specifically in science. Um, my oldest daughter, Karis, is 13, and in her science curriculum, she studies, I don't know, chemistry and physics and kind of an amalgamation of things. And there's a lot of experiments that are a part of her curriculum. And, and so it's always my job to help her work through the science experiments. So a couple of weeks ago, we were um, doing an experiment, and we were uh, learning about uh, how fire responds in a high oxygen atmosphere. And so we took, I think it was hydrogen peroxide and yeast and mixed them together in a bottle and put a balloon on top and it, the reaction caused the balloon to fill with oxygen. And then we lit a candle under a jar and then we stuck the balloon under the jar and let the balloon out into the jar that was filled with oxygen and nothing happened. And I knew something was supposed to happen because I, one, the experiment said it was, it was supposed to flame up really high and almost practically explode with the oxygen content. And I'd seen this experiment on YouTube and I've seen it done and I knew it was supposed to happen, but it didn't happen. And Karis was bummed out about that. I had to tell her that, you know, even a failure is a success in an experiment. <sighs> it's not true, but whatever. <laughs> um, but for some reason, conditions weren't right for the oxygen and the flame and the explosion. And Matthew has been uh, leading us through his story about the life and ministry of Jesus, and he's established a pattern. He's established an expectation that we have, that Jesus goes somewhere he proclaims the kingdom of God. He teaches. He heals. He does miracles. People are amazed. There's power everywhere he goes. And that's what we've come to expect in this story. But Jesus gets to Nazareth, and it doesn't happen. The conditions aren't right in Nazareth. And we read in verse 58 that it's because of unbelief. So we're going to talk about unbelief this morning. We're going to talk about some of the reasons why the people of Nazareth didn't believe and maybe why we don't believe Christ, and then the consequences of that unbelief. And if you're in here and maybe you're, you're journeying with your faith and you haven't committed to Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian 
that's important. What, is, what, what are the reasons why we experience unbelief and, and what are the consequences of unbelief? But if you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've trusted in Christ, this still applies to you and I because I think we often experience unbelief in our lives as well. So first of all, what is unbelief? In Scripture, unbelief is described as faith. It's described as trust. Um, I like the word allegiance because we understand that from a, a, a civil patriotic kind of way. Most often, and, and sometimes the Bible talks about this, but most often the facts of the matter aren't really what's being discussed when we talk about unbelief. It's not, do you think this is true? It's, do you trust this person? And some of you might say, well, I have things that I don't believe are true. I'm not really sure Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not really sure Jesus claimed to be God like you Christians think he did. I'm not really sure I can trust the Bible. And, and those are things that you should work through, and, and a group of Christians is a great place to work through those matters of fact. But at the end of the day, what God calls us to is trust in the person of Jesus. James 2.19 even kind of mocks the person who doesn't trust Christ. And you can turn there if you'd like to. It's towards the back. James 2 says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It's like James is making fun of us a little bit there. Like, you believe that God is one. Your theology of who God is is monotheistic. You've figured out the facts about God. Great. God's enemies have that all sorted out, and at least they go a step further, and they're afraid of who God is. And so oftentimes in Scripture, when we talk about faith, when we talk about unbelief, we're talking about our trust in the person of Christ. And we see this immediately in the text. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there, and he went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers. They, the people don't doubt Jesus' ability. They don't say, everything you said is stupid and we don't think you can do miracles. That's not the problem they have. They recognize that he's speaking wisdom and they know they've heard that he's doing miracles. They don't have any problems with the facts. They have problems with the person. And I want to take a look at three reasons that we have and that the Nazarenes had for unbelief this morning. And the first one is that Jesus didn't have any academic credentials. They, they say, where, where did you get this wisdom? See, Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth, and he grew up as a carpenter. We're going to talk about that in a minute. As a, as a young Jewish boy, he would have likely gone to school for a few years up until the, he was about 12 or 13 years old, and then he would have chosen a trade. It looks like he chose the trade of his father. Some Jewish children who were especially talented um, went on to secondary school. 
And then maybe they got apprenticed under a great rabbi. If you read about Paul's story later in the Bible, that's his story. He gets um, apprenticed under Gamaliel, the great teacher in Jerusalem when he's young. But most Jewish children wouldn't get that opportunity, and Jesus didn't get that opportunity either. And it's, it's interesting. We don't know the facts about a lot of his young life. There's one story in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple debating with the theologians there, and they're all just blown away by how smart he is. But even that being the case, the opportunity to progress in his education wasn't offered to him. Maybe it's just because he lived in a poor town and the opportunity wasn't there, and we don't know. But the people of Nazareth, they're pretty sure he didn't go to school and learn how to be a religious teacher. And notice they don't react to the things they say, or that he says. They don't say, well, you know, I really disagree with you about that point, or my reading of the Scripture is this way. They don't say anything like that. They just say, you don't have any formal authority. How can you be a teacher? My, uh, my parents and my wife and I used to uh, run a childcare center in Post Falls, and we had lots of really awesome kids that we taught there. And then we had some other kids. <laughs> and, and I remember there was this one preschooler who had a, he came from a rough home, and he had a really hard time with life. And my job was to be the disciplinarian. And so if you, just, if you were disobedient, you got sent to Zach's office. And this little boy was in my office a lot. And I just remember there was this one time he would, he would get so mad and just couldn't control himself and he was so angry. And I'd have to shut the door of my office and sit on the floor up against the door to keep him from just running out of the room. And I said, hey, buddy, you, you really need to calm down. And he goes, you're not the boss of me. And then he lunged at me. And I just instinctively moved. And he slammed his face into the door. And I honestly, I felt really good about that. And that's wrong of me. Um, <laughs> he heard his note. He was fine. But he didn't believe I had any authority Right? He, didn't, he didn't respect the authority I had, and he wasn't about to listen to my counsel. And it turned out badly for him. And I think I run the risk of doing this myself. I judge people all the time, like, oh, you don't have the right kind of education. Or you grew up in the wrong church tradition. Or maybe I just think you're a little weird, so I couldn't possibly hear from God through you. And it may just be that Jesus is sending that person that I think has no authority to speak to me in that moment. And so I, I have to be careful that I don't disbelieve what Jesus is doing because of some academic credentialing problem. Look at the second thing that they have against Jesus In verse 55, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? See, they, the people of Nazareth have an expectation for how Jesus is supposed to behave. This is the carpenter's son. So we, 
we read in Matthew this, and then in Mark, we read that they call him the carpenter. And so we kind of put them together, and we get the impression that Jesus grew up with his earthly father, Joseph, who was a carpenter, and he took up the family business alongside his father. The word carpenter is tekton in Greek. It means uh, a builder uh, with wood, with masonry. So a carpenter would do everything from making farming equipment to building houses. It was a skilled craftsman kind of job. And it's likely that Joseph and later his son Jesus would have been the only carpenters in the area. They would have had a reputation for their work. You would see Jesus walking down the street. Hey, Jesus, what you doing today? Oh, I'm going over to Susanna's house to fix her shutters. Or Levi asked me to help him with a new horse barn. Or whatever the case. But Jesus was doing this in town. This is what his role was. My expectation of Jesus looks like this. And again, I think we can, we can do the same thing with Jesus today. I have a buddy who's a, a pastor in town, and, and we get together for breakfast. And he comes from a very different church tradition than I do. Um, I come from a, 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 a background where you, you read your Bible, you pray, you hang out with God's people, you try to do some good in the world. God guides you, usually through the text of Scripture, he comes from a world where you stand up and speak in tongues and prophesy and gold dust falls from the ceiling and there's miracles and healings and visions. And I know for a lot of us, especially in a more conservative church tradition, like you immediately go, well, that's all fake. But I'm not sure it is. I mean, I know some of it's fake. I know people have done terrible things in the name of the Lord and faked that kind of thing. But but as I talk to my friend, like, he has a relationship with God that's powerful. And it's very different than mine. And I always walk away from the breakfast we have together going, God, man, I want to know you like he knows you. But it would be very easy for me to just go, okay, that doesn't fit into my God box. My God box says God works like this, and all of these things are crazy, so therefore God does not do those kind of things. And just dismiss that. God doesn't speak through him. God doesn't love those people. Those things aren't real. And I wonder if God is maybe working in ways that I just don't accept because it doesn't fit the way I think Jesus is supposed to behave. And this is... It's kind of a side note, but this is why I, I really struggle with theological systems. Like there's, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism and dispensationalism and preterism and amillennialism and all of these things. And some of you, are, your eyes are glazing over and you're like, I don't even know what that means. And some of you are like, yeah, let's argue about that for six hours. And the problem with something like that is whatever system you adopt, you put God in a box, and then, okay, this is how God works. And then something happens out here, and you're like, nope, that can't be God because this is how God works. And I wonder if we miss the things that God is doing because we've just decided this is how God works. 
Jesus, you're the carpenter's son. You build stuff. We've, you grew up here. We've, you fixed my hoe. Like, you, there's just like, this is what Jesus does. And he can't possibly be doing these other things. Look at the third way that they respond in the back half of verse 55. Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? Sir, where does he get all of these things? And the third thing that the the people of Nazareth do is is they, they disbelieve Jesus because of his association with other people. Jesus' whole family is from Nazareth. He has brothers and sisters, which Joseph, we talked about this a little bit before, but Joseph and Mary had children together, many children, after Jesus was born. And it's likely that Joseph has died at this point, or he would be mentioned in the story. But the family, while, while the, the role of carpenter would have been respected in the city, this particular family was kind of stigmatized because everybody knew that Mary and Joseph weren't married when Jesus was born. And you see little hints of that in the Gospels where Jesus' enemies call him names that insinuate that. And so nobody really knows what went down. I mean, we do. We read the story in in Luke and Matthew that the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Mary and that she was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Um, But just like any of us, if somebody came into this room and said that was how they got pregnant, you'd have your doubts. And so the community knows that something weird happened when Jesus was born and they've never really let go, let go of it because it was a big deal. It was a stigma on the family. And so they have a reputation. And so they're saying, look, Jesus, you're connected with these people, so we don't have to listen to you. Uh, there's an Indian philosopher named Bharadada, which I think is awesome, um, who says something that often gets attributed to Gandhi. He, he says, Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. That's hurtful. And it's easy to, to, to see the way people act in our world that claim the name of Christ and go, yeah, us Christians, we need to get our act together. And that might be true. Like, we want to be people that strive to live like Jesus by the power of the Spirit of God that lives in us. We want to be people that go out into the world and say, hey, here's the radical love of God. Let me tell you about my Lord. We want to be those people. But Mr. Dada's uh, argument against Christ is not a good one. It doesn't have anything to do with the claims of Christ. It doesn't matter if we're a whole bunch of screw-ups. I mean, obviously, we're a bunch of screw-ups. That's the point of the gospel. We need something more than we can generate on our own, and so we've come to Christ for salvation. But to say, like, well, Christians, you're... I I don't need to listen to Jesus because I know what Christians are like. I don't need to take Jesus seriously because 
of the Christians I see on my Twitter feed. I don't like them. That's not, a, that's not a very good argument against the gospel. But that's what the people in Nazareth are saying. They're saying, we don't need to listen to you, Jesus, because we know your family. So notice none of these reasons have anything to do with Jesus actually standing in the synagogue, speaking the good news of the kingdom of God in Nazareth on that day. These people are not reacting to his teaching. They're not um, critiquing what he has to say. They've just decided that they do not have to listen to him because of all these other things. And we could run the risk of doing the same thing. Like we can come up with all kinds of reasons why, you know what, I just don't really need to listen to Jesus. I don't really need to pay attention to that because of this and this and this, and, and never really engage who Jesus is and what he's saying. So what's the consequence of this for the people of Nazareth? They are, in verse 57, offended by him. They are, the the word could be translated, scandalized by him. They're just put out by him. I was um, reminded this week of, there's a movie from, I think it's from 1995, called Clueless. And uh, it's an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma in a kind of California Valley Girl setting. And there's a scene that's a pretty famous scene where the lead character is walking to school and she's in high school and this boy comes up to her and puts his arm around her shoulder and she pushes him away and goes, oh, as if. She's, she's disgusted. She's offended. And this is, this is the reaction of the people of Nazareth. Jesus, come on. As if. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. See, we've talked about Jesus' miracles a little bit already, but Jesus has come proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? God's people are in exile under the awful hand of the Romans. And they're crying out for salvation. And God, through thousands of years, has been slowly working this plan where he's going to bring his people and his kingdom together. And Jesus comes and he says, you know what? That day is today. I am the king and I am bringing the kingdom. And the miracles are signposts of the kingdom. They're little... um, little drops of the kingdom of God all around Judea and Galilee. They're foretastes of the world that God is going to be bringing life, wholeness, beauty, inclusion, family, safety, release from oppression. This is God's plan to spread this kingdom until it covers the whole earth. 
But the crazy thing is, not in Nazareth. Doesn't happen in Nazareth. And this is a this is a stark reminder, and this is another one of those problems with theological systems, but this is a stark reminder that God doesn't always get what he wants. Right? Like, Jesus came to his hometown not to condemn it, not to judge it, but to bring the good news to it. And he left, and they were unresponsive. God is sovereign over the whole world, and his plan will not be stopped, ultimately, but he lets his creations that he's given free will play a part in that. And if you and I and the people of Nazareth are like, yeah, we're not interested, then he respects that, and he just moves on. I want to read Isaiah 35. Isaiah is a prophet of God that's writing uh, about 600 years, 700 years before Jesus. And he says a lot of really interesting stuff. But in chapter 35, he's, he's writing a poem about the future, about what God's going to do in the future, the kingdom that he's going to bring to his people. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses. But Isaiah writes, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and it will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals, in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there and a way, and it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there, and no vicious beast will go up on it, and they will, be, they will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk on it, and the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crown with unending joy." Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. So this is the vision that Isaiah has of a day in the future when God has brought his kingdom fully to pass in the world. And Jesus says, this is what I'm bringing to you. And this mission that Jesus is on, the, the king of the universe spreading his kingdom in the world that has rejected him, it's not going to be stopped. Like the march of the gospel, the, the work of Jesus to reclaim the world for his kingdom is going to burn across the land until the whole thing belongs to him. 
But that day, it didn't happen in Nazareth because they just didn't believe. So for us this morning, like I think we have the same opportunities as the people of Nazareth did. For many of us, we've, maybe we've, we've grown up in, in Christian uh, circles. We know some things about Jesus. We're familiar. But Jesus is still doing the same stuff. And if you're a Christian this morning, even more so, you've believed the facts about Jesus, right? You've said, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross and rose for the, from the dead to forgive me for my sins. I believe that, and that's awesome. But do we trust the person of Jesus? Do we rely on Jesus today for the things that he's telling us to do? Think back, if you can, it's been a long time, but to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Think of those things that we talked about that Jesus said, like love people that are unlovable. Give away your stuff to those in need. Forgive over and over and over again. If you're weak, that's okay. You're blessed. Like the Sermon on the Mount is... It's hard. It's scary. It's a leap for most of us. But that's the message of the kingdom of God that he is spreading. And to say, I trust Jesus, is to say, I don't need to run away from personal pain. I can lean in to those situations and bring light into them because Jesus is my healer. I don't need to hoard my resources for myself and be afraid that there's not going to be enough. I can freely give them away knowing that Jesus is my provision. I don't need to make little factions of good people and bad people and build walls and, and separate over issues Because Jesus is tearing down those walls. See, I can have faith in Christ. I can trust Christ. I can swear my allegiance to Christ for all of those things. And when I do that, when I decide to live that way, that's when the kingdom of God shows up. That's when I begin to see things and experience things and build relationships and coincidences happen that are just amazing because God is doing something in my midst. And it's just like the way the flame in the jar is supposed to grow and grow and almost explode in the oxygen. when we allow the conditions to be right, when we say, I trust you, Jesus, I want life, I want the kingdom.
And that's hard, right? Like I, I, I'm so distracted by everything, right? There's so much going on in the world that catches my attention. And there are so many times that I just don't think what Jesus is saying is right. And I don't really know why, but I've got plenty of excuses. But the times that I choose to trust him and to walk by faith are the times that I see God work in my life. And for Revelation Church, that's what I want for us. I want us to consistently step into situations where the kingdom of God blows up. And it, it starts with us trusting Jesus with everything that we have, with everything that we are. And so as we, as we take communion this morning, as we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, how he defeated the powers of death and darkness by submitting himself to them in death and rose from the dead to secure our salvation. I want us to ask ourselves, is our faith just some facts about Jesus? Are we just aware of who Jesus is because he grew up in our town or, or we've been to church for so long and we got, I got all this Jesus stuff figured out? Or are we really trusting in him when he speaks? Are we really allowing him to work in our lives? And as the band plays, come forward and, and take the bread and take the cup back to your seats um, and take the communion uh, privately Spend some time in prayer. Listen to the words of the songs as we remind one another as we sing. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the reminder that, that we have a role to play in your kingdom. God, you, you are a um, you are a gentleman. You do not often force people to do anything. You allow the freedom that you've given us. And we can use that freedom to trust you or ignore you or be offended by you. And I just pray that for all of us here, whether we would call ourselves Christians or not, that we would begin to trust you. God, I want the kingdom of God to flare up and explode in my midst. I want there to be miracles. I want there to be healings. I want people to get saved out of darkness. I want that to happen in our town. God, I just pray that that we would be people that trust you to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.